Well, Second Prez, let me just say that it is an honor for me to be here with you. I am honored and, and humbled. Uh, just seeing what God is doing amongst you, it is a, a thrill, a thrill to see. Uh, I'm grateful to be here with my friend and, and brother and colleague and, and yoke fellow, uh, Pastor George. I have a tremendous respect for this brother, and I love to, uh, to, to learn from him. He has a lot to pour out, and uh, he's a pastor of pastors, and I feel very pastored by him every time he and I get together. I was not surprised about this gospel priorities vision and uh, having uh, talked with him uh, so many times. And so it is a thrill to be here with you. And thank you for your hospitality. All the pastors who have uh, helped us, uh, my sister and I, to, to, feel, to feel welcome. Uh, I'm going to ask you if you would join me in Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15, we'll look at verses 1 through 15. Our dear friend Carl Ellis likes to say that nothing will shake your theology like reading scripture. <laughs> that nothing will reframe and reshape how you see yourself in the world like reading scripture. So let's turn our attention um, to the word of God. I'd like to read verses 1 through 15 and pray for us. And then we'll give our attention to this text. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1 says, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of this commandment that I command you today. Verse 6, for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and, he shall, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Verse 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, and any of your towns within your land the Lord your God is giving you, you should not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. In your eye, look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. We're going to pause and stop right there. So I thought this morning, saints, is simply this. Reset to restore. Let me say it again. Reset to restore. Let's ask the Lord's help 
this morning. Father God, I just ask right now for the presence of your spirit, the poignancy of your presence. Father, pray that you would grant unction in this moment. God, I am indeed weak and inadequate to do what you envision in the preaching moment. So God, would you by your spirit reach hearts? Would you bring conviction? Would you give hope to these, your people? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Well, saints, it was in January 1964 when Lyndon Johnson, um, before Congress, gave this speech, this vision for what he called the war on poverty. And we need to understand the context, the moment, the season that he was dealing with because nearly 20% of Americans were in poverty. So Johnson had this, this vision It's an interesting thing for us as Christians to ask ourselves, is it a good thing to have such a vision for a nation? When I say good, the question is, is it a righteous thing to do that? But the vision was grand, and much of what we know about what we can call kind of the welfare apparatus that we know today, 40 programs he had aimed to produce, eliminating poverty by improving living conditions for people in low-income neighborhoods and also in rural areas. He also wanted to to provide more access to economic opportunities. Here are some of the things that this action in Congress did. The Economic Opportunity Act, 1964, which led to the Job Corps, Head Start, legal services. How about this one? The Food Stamp Act of 1964. How about this? The Social Security Act, which brought us, among other things, Medicaid and Medicare. And it's a fascinating thing because there was a time when when these things were controversial. (laughs) If if we were to suggest today, if I were to say that, that Medicare is socialism, Folks would be like, what are you talking about? I, I, I need Medicare. But, but, but the controversy that was grabbing this nation at the time included a lot of folks who were concerned about, about this drift toward kind of state actions. Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California at the time, said that, that, that Medicare was socialism. And so there were those on the right, we would call it today, who were very much concerned about what, what Johnson had envisioned, but it was also on the, on the progressive side. Martin Luther King, who was rightly endeared in this, in this city, pushed back against the vision, saying it was inadequate, it was, it was too splintered. And we get the concern, right, because we're always trying to balance the, the, the need to, to help in trying to avoid the, uh, avoid the hurt. And many of you have read the book, Helping That Hurts, that realizes that is possible. But Gandhi said something here that I think we should feel, is that Gandhi said that poverty is the worst form of violence. That poverty, he says, is violence. Now, I want us to evaluate that question which is to say this, does poverty exact excessive harm? So there was a 
a recent psychology symposium in, in Amsterdam, and scientists looked at this, and they showed that poverty holds a seemingly unbreakable grip on families, neighborhoods, and cities, that it stretches from one generation to the next, trapping people in a socioeconomic pit that is nearly impossible to escape. And part of the fuel they surmise for poverty's unending cycle is its suppressing, feel this, effects on individuals' cognitive development. Can I say it again? Is that poverty has this impact on how our brains work, executive function, and attention. Indeed, decades of research have already documented that people who deal with stressors, such as low family income, discrimination, limited access to health care, exposure to crime, and similar conditions are highly susceptible to physical and mental disorders. Low educational attainment and IQ scores noted one University of Pennsylvania professor. Here's another scholar. Surveys have shown that a very common view about why poor people are poor is that they don't try hard enough. They're irresponsible. They make poor decisions. They don't stay in school, etc. But it's not so much a particular behavior that is causing poverty, but it is poverty that is causing a particular behavior. And he says this is a moral issue. How much more do we have to talk about the fact that poverty is not good for people? Saints, here's the question that we want to ask today as we work our way toward God's word. Let's ask this question about him. Does God have a heart and a prescription, indeed a vision, for the economic restoration of the poor that falls within his redemptive and salvation purposes in Christ? Let me ask it again. Does our God have a heart and a prescription, indeed a vision, for the economic restoration of the poor that falls within his redemptive and salvation purposes in Christ? Which is to ask this, my friends, is there an ethical, moral, and therefore righteousness tie between the gospel's good news of renewing and restoring spiritual soul poverty and material soul poverty? And if this is God's heart, this is our question, is it not? Are there implications or could we say divine expectations or even requirements for the social conduct of Christians in the church and in society? This is our question, isn't it? Is, are there implications for us? <laughs> That's the question, is it not? Is this a mere social issue? Because we are tempted to minimize these questions. Indeed, many of us have been discipled and taught not to value questions like this with any meaningful eternal significance. We have learned that these are important secondary matters. Good, but not essential. <laughs> Ideal, but not required, and therefore optional. But Deuteronomy 15 paints a different picture, saints. We're going to try to do two things this morning in the time that we have left. One for sure, second if we have time to do it. <laughs> 
We want to reflect on this passage with God and the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, what are you saying to this text? It's for us. And then if we have time, and I pray that we do, I guess it's incumbent upon me to ensure that we do, is to connect this text to our salvation. I want to say it again, please. Let me say it as clear as I, as I can. Can we connect God's heart for the poor to not only our own expected conduct before him, but in some ways to the very salvific work that God is doing amongst us without any hint of works righteousness. And if we don't get to that this morning in the 815, I promise we'll pick it up in the 11 (laughs) for what it's worth. (laughs) Let's move in. First, let's let's reflect on the context. And you guys just looking at the book of Deuteronomy and and, and recently amongst your residents. so, So a lot of you know this that the book of Deuteronomy was written to the generation of of people, the children of those who failed in their calling to follow Yahweh. So it was written to this emerging generation who came on the heels of their parents, who failed spiritually, and therefore the book of Deuteronomy is a book about revival. It is a book about quickening the grace of God amongst us. It's about building up our souls and spirits so we can live a God-honoring, a God-glorifying life. And so one of the things that this book does then for us is that it paints a portrait of the character of Yahweh. Who is he? What kind of God is Yahweh? But the other thing that Deuteronomy shows the people of God is that the people of God are meant to be a message from God is that the people of God are intended to be a witness. One of the the clear things we see right in Deuteronomy 4 is God says to them through Moses that you are meant to be seen, that you're meant to be observed, is that a word that God brings to the nations is through the life and conduct of his people. That's God's speech. And one of the ways that this God's speech is brought is how the people of God take care of the vulnerable. For example, Deuteronomy 14, verse 28, at the end of every three years, you should bring out of all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord may bless you. Oh, I love that phrase where he says to them, so they may come eat and be filled because it it actually harkens back to what we see in Deuteronomy 8 where God says to the Israelites that you will eat and be filled in this land. And God says that to them as a portrait of their prosperity, as an expression of their flourishing. And what it says to us is that the, the welfare that's done for the marginal is not meant to be goodwill hand downs, but they are meant to be fully satisfied that the generosity of the people of God to the marginalized is meant to bring contentment and satisfaction to them. But Deuteronomy 15, my friends, puts forth the radical notion that even when generosity is commended or commanded through welfare, that God does not intend welfare to be the permanent answer for the poor is that this this cycle of give and receive, give and receive, that is not God's vision. 
for the poor. Here's our first brief thought as we look at verses 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy 15, which is this release. God intends poverty to be temporary, not generational. God intends poverty to be temporary, not generational. Look at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. There was a triennial tithe to provide relief for the poor. And then there is a seventh year, a seventh, a Sabbath year to provide release for the poor. Every seven years, all debts were to be released or canceled. Why? Because the context makes clear debt was a major reason for enduring poverty. Releasing would mean forgiving whatever balance remains and returning all pledges of security or collateral. I lent and I let it go. And one of the things that we see in this text, we have time to deal with all this, but we see a moral, can I say it slowly, a moral priority on people's security over the economic rights of lenders. that people's security was morally more significant than the economic rights of those who lent. And saints, we see this a lot. I'm just going to accelerate here. If you look at Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13, is that the Lord talks about how we should treat those who have collateral. Treat them with respect. Don't just go grab what they have promised, to, what they pledged to you. Stand outside and wait for it. God is saying, I need you to be careful, to show respect, to give deference. But here's the question I want to ask this morning. If God has a vision for the poor, for those who have borrowed out of necessity, if God is concerned about their security, about their stability, if God sees moral value and they're not enduring in poverty and not being overly exposed, what does this say about the moral calculus of things like eviction in our society? Or foreclosure? Is there, a moral, is there a morality considering my economic interest as a, land, as a property owner? What is the morality of me putting a family on the streets because they can't pay? <laughs> Does God, in God's economy, in that sense, I want to be careful here. I'm making broad strokes. Does the, the language of the lease have any merit in the heart of God? That's one of the questions, is it not? And if I have the power to do something or to be merciful, and the point here, saints, is not to define a strict kind of social policy, but to first and foremost understand God's heart. Because God's heart sets the tone for what our social, economic, and business policies should be. 
Which the next point that we want to see here under scores, verses 4 and through 6 of Deuteronomy 15. Let me give you this thought, that you are financially blessed for the poor. If we were to do a theology of wealth and examine God's own heart about how he handles his wealth, that you are blessed for the poor. Look at verse 4. He says, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land your God is giving you for an inheritance. What we see here is that the eradication of poverty is not first connected to the fruitful labor of the poor who pull themselves themselves up through their own efforts and sacrifice, but it is grounded in the national economic prosperity of all Israel in the righteous conduct of the prosperous. We need to ground this very briefly in a broader kind of theological understanding as to how what God is seeing with all of the earth's resources. Let's just give a quick biblical theological picture here. That the earth was given to all humanity and its resources meant to be shared with and beneficial to all. And that does not rule out ownership of land and resources, but it does not entail an absolute right of disposal, but rather responsibility for stewardship and distribution. Let me go very quickly to to Leviticus 25. And this is in relation to the land being the promised land, but I want us to understand God's heart here. In verse 23 of Leviticus 25, he said, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. He's saying that you don't have an absolute right to the land. What do you mean, Lord? For the land is mine, he says, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And what God is saying is that you are guests in the land. You don't own the land. You're not sovereign in the land. And I think God is saying to us is that God is saying is that with the wealth that we have, saints of God, we are not its sovereign. We are its stewards. Amen. Is that we then therefore have a responsibility to manage that in a way that reflects the character and heart of God. And this was a strict contrast to how the other nations managed their land as it was, was greatly owned by the kings. The people were basically serfs. But the main thing I want you to see here, saints, is that the laws and the correction that we see in Scripture toward Israel was, was always addressed to the powerful, those who wield economic, social, and cultural power and have the resources to do something about poverty. Israel's social law addresses creditors, not debtors, Deuteronomy 24, 6 and 10 through 13, employers and not laborers, Deuteronomy 24, 14, slave owners and not slaves, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18. So accumulating wealth to the exclusion of the, of the poor's needs is inconsistent with God's vision for his people. And this mindset leads to the alleviation of poverty 
and the empowerment of the poor. I think about what the text says here in verse 7. If if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you should not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Listen to this, verse 9. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say. So the ESV says unworthy, but the Hebrew implies wicked a dark way of looking at your brother. It's what he's saying to us here. How are we to respond to this? With a curiosity? Wow, I never saw that text before. Does, it, does the Lord exact something of salvific significance on us as people and how we relate to the poor? I'm going to leave you with this. Matthew 25, 41 through 46. I want you to listen to what Jesus says here. This is when he gives this narrative to the people of God saying that when the Son of Man returns with with the angels, he's going to separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. That's what he says. And then he says this. He says that those on his right, he will commend for their generosity. Those on his left, he says this, verse 4 to 1. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? Or in prison, not minister to you. And Christ says to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment. (laughs) I'm going to wrap up here. I'm not going to look at my notes anymore. We need a better theological understanding of the judgment, Frank, uh, uh, saints. The judgment seat of Christ is not a theological exam. And I am thankful for ministries like Evangelism Explosion. I took the training. But you're not going to be asked that question when you stand before the judgment seat. That is not the function. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and do what? Give an answer for what we did in the body, whether good or bad. When we go to Revelation 20 and we see the great white throne, it says that the books will be opened. And we'll see all what people did will be written in the books. And then it says, then we will look for the, in the, the book of life. Saints of God, let me suggest something to you, that the book of life is not a ledger. It is not a ledger. We have imposed that on it, that it is a list. 
that the book of life, like every other book that we see in Scripture, is a chronicle. It is a chronicle of the works of God through his people, and it is a living book. It is the book of life. And in this book of life, are you written in there? What did you do? What did you do? I don't see your name in this story of God's redemptive, restorative work. You're not in there. How we respond to the marginal is like checking for a spiritual sign of life. It is like checking for a pulse. It is like blood pressure. And I think one of the reasons I can suggest, I don't know this, that we have this kind of judgment is so that all can see and understand. I can see it's not a secret divine knowledge. It is an observation of your life. Did you live like Christ? Don't tell me who he is. We know who Jesus is. How did you live like Christ? May the Spirit of God bring us a, a, a tremendous conviction. I will leave you with this and I will pray. Every sacrifice you make for those who are marginal is a reflection of, of the sacrifice that Christ made for you and your marginalization. This is how you express being conformed to his likeness by saying who he is and showing who he is. And that is commended by him. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy. Because we know, God, that even with what you're showing us about the judgment, we are not in any way justified by what we do. (laughs) We are dependent upon your, your character, Jesus, being given to us, your abundant mercy. Thank you, Jesus. But we also know that we have your spirit who has come to us. We are regenerate. We are a new creation. And we have, you said in your word, the mind of Christ. Help us to live like it. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.